0: If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and um, we're going to be in chapter 12 once again. Today's sermon is a a follow up to the very first sermon um, that I did on this series of truths for tough times. The theme of that sermon was we have to be united. Okay, we have to be united. Well, the Apostle Paul um, in Romans 12, which is where that sermon came from, follows up on that that theme with this theme of we have to love. We have to love others. We have to love one another. This is the critical ingredient for that unity. Um, The the critical need is to love. Now, I have to say, you know, when I hear someone say they're going to teach or they're going to preach on love, I, I immediately, I think, Okay, so this is going to be um, uh, like you have to be a good person and um, go down to the soup kitchen, <laughs> um, you know, give the minimum um, at the office or more. Um, and and it, it turns into uh, just about doing good things. That, that's what love uh, can often, a, a teaching or a sermon on love can turn into But I hope what you'll see in these words from the Apostle Paul is, when we're talking about biblical love, this love that Paul refers to that needs to be genuine, we're talking about something that is entirely challenging uh, to the natural person, to the natural uh, man. It's challenging because uh, apart from God's help in this, We will be enslaved to ourself. And the call to love is this call to to break free, to find liberty from the slavery to self as we learn to consider the needs of others, as we consider what it means to love God as we we love others and as we love those specifically uh, who are within the body of Christ, as we um, begin to engage the meaning of Christian love, we just need to remember Paul's starting point um, in chapter 12. Paul's not saying that we have to do these things. This is, um, he's not adding uh, another, uh, he's not adding a law saying, this is what you have to do either to gain your salvation or to maintain your salvation. At the beginning of uh, Romans chapter 12, he begins with the idea uh, of therefore um, based on God's mercies because of what Christ has already done for us we are to live in a certain direction because he's made us new we are to live out of that newness because that's what should be natural for us as we grow in Christ would you stand with me for the reading of God's uh, for God's word This is Romans 12, verses 9 through 11. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? O Lord, your light is the light of life. Lead us in your truth. Teach us that all the light that shines forth from your word may purify, renew, and transform us and become in us spiritual nourishment and power through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins with what almost sounds like a truism, okay? um, something that, that should be obvious. Um, he basically begins just by saying, our love must be real. Um, this is right at the top of uh, uh, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Other ways, this gets translated, love must be sincere. Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's the New American standard. The love that he's describing here, um, this real, genuine, authentic, um, biblical love, is this kind of love, it not only is able to take us outside of ourselves, um, but it is going to be, in some sense, countercultural, as we'll work through what this genuine love looks like. Now, this love here seems to be uh, that he's referring to in verse 9, it's the word agape. That's that kind of general um, uh, biblical term um, that refers to a genuine concern for the well-being and the good of others. Paul defines it um, using these words from Philippians chapter 2. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Biblical love, this genuine love, is something that is designed to take us outside of ourselves, which is why it's so challenging, because we naturally are concerned about, number one, <laughs> we're naturally concerned about our own uh, well-being, our own natural needs and, uh, and challenges, Genuine love um, goes deeper than these attitudes and practices. It is able, to, uh, it means this ability to live free from slavery to self. One of my old professors uh, wrote this Having been created by God for God, the self can never be self satisfied. So here's the problem for the person living apart from Christ, who's living in their own strength. The problem is that in our sinful condition, we can't get outside of ourselves because the needs of the self are limitless. They're never satisfied. And so he continues, yet having lost sight of the God revealed in the Bible, all we can see is ourself with its futile drive to meet its own ever-changing but never-satisfied cravings for the second-rate pleasures of this world. Genuine love begins by having, then, a saving relationship with Christ. This is where biblical love begins. In 1 John 4, listen to these words, verses 7 and 8. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So the love that that Paul's interested in, the, the love that the Bible is describing, that it's enjoining upon the believers is a love that only comes by having a relationship with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. To escape the self so that we truly can love means that our faith has to be genuine. That's the starting point. That we really are trusting in God to love us and to provide for our needs, especially uh, in the sense that we know that we have been forgiven. There's this, um, in the Bible, there's these these three virtues that are repeated uh, over and over. Faith, hope, love. And, and it's not just that they're three entirely separate virtues, but they're actually connected. Because it's only when we have faith in the Lord that we're able to trust that his promises will come to pass that we're able to trust that we are loved with this unconditional, unbreakable, eternal love in and through Jesus. By faith, we believe the promise that his death was powerful enough, that it was big enough to forgive, to atone our sins, and to grant to us a clear and clean conscience. And when we know that the Lord will provide for our needs, including our future, we are then freed up. We, then, we, we have the capital uh, to, be, uh, to love others with the love that God has first loved us. One of the greatest hindrances to really being able to get outside yourself is a guilty conscience. It's, it's a, it's a, this inability to accept God, what God's word said is true, that we have been forgiven. And so if we're struggling with our own guilt, with our own, um, uh, uh, lack of, of worth, it's very difficult to consider the needs of others. We have to have, we have to be in a saving, uh, and vital relationship with the Lord. And when we fail to understand this, it's easy for us to try to fake it. (laughs) To fake our love for others. It's it's the kind of love that's in words only. It's to wear a mask. It's to play the actor. That's, That's what Paul's getting at when he says, your love needs to be the real thing. It needs to be genuine, not fake. Well, not only must our love be real. Genuine love is expressed in the keeping of God's law. Now, this one is not immediately, you know, intuitive. But notice what Paul says as he continues in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Okay? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, what... Um, what doesn't come through this translation very well is how Paul connects this to genuine love. Because in, uh, in the Greek, these two verbs are participles. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means it could be translated this way. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. That would be a perfectly good translation because of the participles of of those two verbs. And this means that what Paul's saying is he's now going on to define, this is what genuine love, this is what biblical love looks like. Well, this raises the next logical question. Who gets to decide what is evil and what is good? So if genuine love... Loves the good, hates the evil. Well, who gets to determine those things? Who gets to decide? And of course, we're Christians, so we know who gets to decide. It's the Lord who gets to decide these things. But how does he get to decide these things? How does he do this? Well, he does it through his law. And the Apostle um, Paul seems to be, he recognizes this, because when you get to chapter 13, listen to these words in verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything anything. Except to love each other. So he's returning to this theme of love. And then here's what he says. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments. So here he's he's thinking very specifically about um, the law of God that was given to Moses, in this case, the Ten Commandments. The commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Genuine love, biblical love, is informed by the truth of God's word. It is informed by the law of God. And in some ways, okay, part of what I think Paul's saying here is if you're loving the way you ought to, then you could almost, you know, pull the commandments aside. They almost become unnecessary because, of course, if you do things like steal from your neighbor, if you commit adultery and and are unfaithful to your spouse, if if you are murdering someone, um, you are... It's obvious you're not loving that person at the same time, are you? So there's a, there's this kind of obvious connection, but then there's this less than obvious connection that the, the law of God defines what love looks like. And if we go back to the earlier commandments about you know um, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself um, or um, uh, an image in the form uh, of anything, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So just consider this, um, the commandment against idolatry. When a person has idols in their life, again, you're breaking God's law. You're loving what is evil that God says is evil rather than the good, which is worship um, of the Lord alone. But what happens when idols get a grab on your heart? Uh, it, idols of uh, of pleasure, especially today, sexual pleasure, uh, money, um, uh, just uh, the kind of hedonistic, taking it easy, laziness. Um, it, it, it could be achievement, whatever the idol may be. What happens? Well, take an easy one. Let's say sports becomes an idol, and, and you know there's a place for sports. All things in moderation, right? But let's say your life just gets dominated by this, and and all you can think about is when you come home, just flipping that TV on and catching the latest sports event. Well, what's happening is you're spending hours, probably passively, you're not even playing sports, you're, you're passively just watching them, and those are hours that could be used with concern for the needs of others. Now, again, all things in moderation, right? But when these things get a hold of us and they become an idol well then, it, it takes away from our ability to love. The law of God also, um, it, it gives teeth to our love. It gives it a certain very solid content and the direction that that love will take. It's clearly that love is very consistent with the truth of God. First John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed, and in truth, in truth. And this is, that means then that our love, as especially as uh, we, we project that love into the surrounding world, for some, it'll be irresistibly attractive. But because it is guided and it's shaped by the truth of God's law and His word, for others, it will be repulsive. It will offend. This is what love does. And think about the only person who ever perfectly loved. What did they do to that person? The world crucified him. Paul continues with a third trait for this love. He says Christians, the Christian love is a family or a familial love. Rome, the next very verse, uh, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here, Paul describes love we are to have in more limited terms. The first term, agape, that's a love that can be directed towards God. It can be directed towards others. It can be directed towards one another in the body. But here, it's very clear. Now he's limiting his focus towards that love, that brotherly love, that sisterly love we're to have towards one another in the body of Christ. He uses the image of sibling relationships the love that members of a family often have for one another. And he says, this is the, the sort of love, this is the, um, the trait that, that ought to characterize the love that God's people have for one another. Well, you ask yourself, what is generally true of love between members of the same family? What's generally... And I'm thinking of a healthy family here. We, we know that... Well, and, and honestly, we know that it's not a perfect love, right? We know that siblings... Um, sometimes are at odds with each other. Uh, sometimes siblings do not treat each other very well. But let me list some of the things that are true in families, uh, at least healthy ones, and that need to be cultivated among God's people. There is security in their love for one another. In healthy family relationships, um, just because a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter or sometimes a mom or a dad, or acting badly, it doesn't mean they lose their status within the family. We can have disagreements, perhaps even all-out fights with one another, and nevertheless, we know uh, that, well, with, with coming back and with confession and with repentance, there can be reconciliation. And in healthy families, we expect that. It's not just something we hope takes place, but we expect it to take place there's security number 2 there is intimacy within the family intimacy in those relationships that is brothers and sisters tend to know each other better than they do friends from the outside they talk to each other they share their lives with each other they know there's a there's a personal knowledge about one another and This is, you know, in families, this just tends to take place naturally and over time. Where we're not able to see each other as much, we do need to be a little more intentional in these kinds of interactions. Seeking to share ourselves with each other. In families, there's tenderness and caring. Brothers and sisters genuinely care about each other. They enjoy getting together. They especially love celebrating together. There is an acceptance Of one another, no matter how different or quirky the other siblings may be. And when they sit down, each person has a place. Number five, family members support one another. If one member falls down, you know, some uh, member of the family experiences some injury or setback or failure, the others are there to help them get back up. And in the same way, this is the, these kinds of the traits are the things that the Apostle is saying should characterize our relationships with one another, especially not just among Christians in general, but especially within a local church like this one. Now, of course, more could be said, but our relationships um, should be characterized by security, intimacy, tenderness and caring, acceptance and support. And Paul goes on, and and he says something very meaningful, especially in their culture. Uh, Outdo one another in showing honor. That is honor for each other. That is outdo each other in showing an appreciation, showing respect, showing gratitude uh, for the other person. This means that we have to have a fairly good self-awareness of ourselves uh, because our tendency um, sometimes is to be offended by the words or the actions of someone else. And this is where we, we want to have a self-awareness of ourselves. We need to have a self-awareness. Every time we go before the Lord in genuine contrition and confession, we should also remind ourselves, Lord, I'm, I'm no better Than anyone else. I am a sinner, just like everybody else, in need of your mercy, in need of your grace. As I go forth from this time of confession, let that that shape, let that direct and guide my attitude towards others. And then on the flip side, to show honor means uh, that in the least, I am slow to judge another person's inner motives. It means that we need to believe the best. In one another, unless, I mean, there's, you know, clear (laughs) evidence. I mean, there are times the person's genuinely trying to attack you and there's clear evidence. Okay, well, I'm not saying we avoid the, the reality of the truth of the situation, but in general, sometimes we're very quick to that conclusion when the evidence is not there. This love should be genuine. It should be informed by, it should be consistent with the law of God. And it should approximate the love of a healthy family. And then this fourth point. Christian love should be full of zeal. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve. Serve the Lord. In the context of law, Paul tells us not to be lazy, but full of zeal, fervent in our spirit. And zeal is such a great word. It's, for some reason, like to be a zealot is a bad thing almost in, in, in our um, context. Um, we don't use the word zeal. I, I'm not sure why, but it's such a good word. It, it points to an eagerness, this passion and pursuit of some cause, Paul combines it with the idea of being fervent, and, and that word for fervent is this idea of bubbling over. It's, it's to, to heat up to the point of boiling. And he says we're to, be, to, to bubble over in our spirit. If you're, if you're using the ESV translation, you'll notice that's a lowercase s. This is where there's ambiguity in the text. Um, pneuma is, is just this word for spirit. It can mean just our human spirit. But very often it can also be the Holy Spirit that he's referring to. And you have to, it's context that determines whether this is a specific reference to the Holy Spirit. And it may be that it is. That's just the translator's best guess here. And he guesses that way because it's in the context of this, this theme of zeal. But it is a reminder that we need the Holy Spirit in order to have that zeal and the fervency that the Apostle is enjoining upon us. Many churches are like the church at Ephesus. In the book of Revelation, though they were passionate for truth and good uh, good teaching, Jesus declares this about the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You ever notice like new Christians, they're so excited about their faith in the Lord. They're just like praying for everything. They're they're praying for parking spaces and and they're getting it. They're praying that the rain goes away or or that the sun comes out and then boom, the sun comes out. And they want to to talk about Jesus with anything that moves. You see, this is that love you that I think the, the church at Ephesus had at the first, this this childlike zealousness. And here the apostles applying this in this context of love. Let us, let us have that new Christian zeal and vitality in our concern and love for one another. And verse 13, just it ends with this, this idea of serving. This first service to the Lord. But service to the Lord flows into service towards one another. And it's just such an excellent way to end this little passage because what is it that service does for us? Why is it that service is such an important value within the life of, and the body of Christ? The apostles say, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What's, what, what's the genius underneath Service. Well, service is able, it takes us outside of ourself. Service requires that we have a concern for others. It's, it's just so good at helping us put to death that constant focus that we have on our own self. It draws us out, and it helps us to cultivate the love that here the apostle is um, exhorting and encouraging and pushing us to cultivate within our lives. We have to love. We have to love others, and we especially have to love one another. Love that is biblical and genuine can't help but be a blessing to bring joy because you are getting closer to the image of Christ when you learn to love in this way. It will, it can't help but to lend itself to bringing more meaning and more joy into the heart and life of the individual believer. But think about what this love does for churches. It sets their unity kind of on fire. And it is this... This powerful light. It's a light that has, you know, this kind of impact on the surrounding world as the people of Christ allow this love to well up, to grow, you know, bubble and boil and become red hot by the Spirit in them. Well, especially in these turbulent times, we have to love. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We love it. We rejoice in it. And we know that our hearts are hard, and it's, we are so often focused on our own needs. And so, Lord, we pray that by your grace, you would teach us to grow in this biblical, genuine uh, love shaped by the truth that is so powerful and impactful in the lives of others. Lord, we want this, that we might bring glory to your name, and so we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.